Hey everyone, welcome to the Seek Outside Podcast, this is Dennis. Before we get started, I'd just like to ask that if you've been enjoying our shows, please leave us a review by selecting all of the stars wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks. Today, Kevin and I are joined by Jason Nelson, an all-around badass climber putting up ice climbing first ascents in Alaska, Norway, and his hometown of Uray, Colorado, just to name a few. A rock climbing resume that includes a 12 and a half hour ascent of the nose of El Capitan in Yosemite National Park, which took the first ascensionist a total of 47 days to complete. So without further ado, please enjoy our conversation with Jason Nelson. Hey, this is Seek Outside Crew. Today on the podcast, we have Jason Nelson. Jason is a guidebook author, adventurer. He's done some pretty cool stuff, a lot of climbing, a lot of mixed climbing, pack rafting. How are you doing today, Jason? I'm doing great. Hey, so Jason. Why, so why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about some of the stuff you've been up to? Yeah, so most recently... Um, I've been involved in writing, well, one of the projects uh, has been writing some ice climbing guidebooks and uh, the, the ones for actually even Colorado have been out of date. So I decided to take the torch and uh, move forward on that. And last, last fall, we came out with Suffer Candy Volume 1. Um, and that covers your ace, Silverton, Telluride, kind of general vicinity. Um, and, you know, I was kind of thinking I would do the whole state or a large part of the state, but just those three towns took up over 400 pages. So I guess I'm going to be doing a series of guidebooks. Um, I probably won't end up covering the entire state, but we'll take it one at a time. And the next one is going to be kind of like uh, rifle grand junction, Blue Mesa, Lake city areas. And uh, it's hard to know exactly how much I'll fit in until I actually get into the layout stage and um, want to, you know, have the guidebook so you can actually carry it to the climb. Uh, so make sure I don't put too much in it. Uh, so that's been a it's big not, project. It, that It's not the extra on? training weight for everybody to carry around yeah nobody wants like an extra 10 pounds in their pack for a, <laughs> <laughs> the guidebook so i try to keep it like you know so it fits in there with all the other gear but um in and the, then the, the sorry the the title of the book is suffer candy yeah where where does that come from where like suffer uh candy? my girlfriend carly came up with that i have to give her credit i was trying to Oh, come up with some Western references and, you know, other literary references, but none seem to be like, I guess, like mainstream enough to where like most of the audience would get it. Um, like I um, wanted to reference one of my favorite books, Blood Meridian, but, you know, there's probably only, I don't know, small percentage of the audience that's actually read that. So it's kind of a... Um, exercise and creative utility but um carly came up with it when she said it i was like that's perfect that's it it you know really embodies ice climbing in a lot of ways it's you know there's suffering it's cold it's scary it can be dangerous but then you know the rewards are sweet like candy um so we kind of knew we had that as soon as she said it 
So is, is there a climb out there that's called Suffer Candy or have you put one up? There isn't. I guess I need to put one up. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> and and for, um, for our, our listeners too that don't necessarily know the, the climbing world, um, you're going to find very unique names for a lot of climbs out there in the world. Um, there's climbs all over the place. Sometimes they're local specific, but usually the first ascensionist, whoever, whoever climbs a route first will put up, uh, will give it a name. And typically that name, um, you know, is either very obscure, uh, um, or very, uh, very descriptive of the climb, but usually it's, it's pretty unique. So yeah. It's, yeah, Suffer back Candy in the early like days. Yeah, they would have boring names like the North Face or the South Ridge. And then I think uh, as climbing got more popular, like in the perhaps with some influence on the drug culture of the 60s and 70s, too. But the names tended to get a lot more interesting uh, <laughs> during that time. And they cover everything from comedic to sexual references to what they had for breakfast that day. Like it's, they're all over the board, but it, it can be c- kind of fun to look into the climbing names and the stories behind. Like sometimes it's kind of, you can find out about what's happening in the first ascension of life, just based on the root names. It's pretty entertaining. So what is your goal when you sit down to write a guidebook? Is it to give a very accurate and detailed description or is it to give something that is, broad enough that people can kind of find their own art in it, but they know the generalities of it? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so, you know, the, the idea to write the guidebook was sort of like, you know, came long after, you know, I'd lived in the ERA for, for 20 years almost at that point. And so I'd been gaining photos and I'd gone and done most of these climbs and so I kind of felt I had the the experience and qualifications to start assembling all this info and writing it down. So that gave me like a big head start. Um, and then in regards to like, um, you know, what information to put in there, you know, a lot of the information I got from like old guidebooks, there's now stuff online and from talking to people and uh, you get wildly different stories, wildly different we call like difficulty ratings, you know, some people are like, oh, it's easy. And some are, oh, it's the hardest thing ever. And so, it, yeah, it really becomes uh, a decision-making process as to like, okay, how do I represent the climb? And then, you know, for me to try to fit all this information in a re- reasonable size, size guidebook, I try to like pull out as much extraneous info as well, but still keep it colorful and entertaining preferably um so yeah i'm trying to weigh the balance of different opinions some you know maybe some personal experiences or some color and at the same time you know trying to whittle it down and fit in this like nice neat little space so it doesn't take up like three pages when you you know you need to fit like 500 climbs in there So, it so I guess turn... it's a little bit of everything. Like I, I don't want to give away the whole climb, you know, or like a fun surprise, but you know, I want people to have a safe experience and be prepared for it. Cause that's why they buy the guidebook. 
And I also put some couple climbs in there that, you know, there's just not much information out there. And they've probably only been done once or twice. Um, and, you know, I tried to make that clear, but it gives people, you know, like, hey, there's an adventure to be had out there. Hope you can find it. And with ice climbs, sometimes they form up some years and sometimes a decade or more can go by before they form up again. So it's, you know, it's kind of like there's still a lot of adventure left for people. Yeah, that would be actually kind of an interesting thing. Like with ice, it's it's a lot more, um, it's a lot less static than say rock or other types of things because it depends so much on the weather and stuff as well. Correct? Yeah, entirely. And, you know, I think people who've ice climbed enough get to know it's really more conditions dependent than it is grade, like difficulty grade dependent. By grade, I mean, we assign like numbers to how hard we think something is. And in ice climbing, they generally go on this curve of like how steep it is or how sustained, but they can completely change from a, you know, wee little bit of ice that just started in the fall to come spring, it might be huge and soft and, or even like a nice climb that's been done a couple of times gets remarkably easier than before it's been climbed before. Um, so yeah, there's, there's all kinds of adventure left to be uh, had for those reading the guidebook, you know, like the, the experience is not predetermined. So because it changes, like most ice climbs change from year to year, like, you know, you have a guidebook, you obviously build into that, like, hey, this hasn't formed in the last five years or something like you're telling people, you know, um, that information, I would imagine, right? Um, that maybe Yeah, I try to put that in there. I mean, you can't ever like, it's hard to measure or even remember in a lot of cases. It's like, yeah, I remember mm. ice formed there one year and it was, I don't know, a decade ago. And I might yeah. say like seldom forming or ice has formed here in the past and hope you're lucky and, you know, can go experience it. Mm. So and when it does come in, go get it. Cause it might fall down once the sun comes out. It happens sure. really regularly. Yeah. So do you get people that hit you up um, as the author, right? They'll send you messages and be like, Hey, what's the like this year or what's the like right now? You know? Uh, yeah. So, well, I think a lot of that has actually deferred to like Facebook groups. I mean, I certainly get a little bit of it, but, um, and I tar take part in the Facebook groups. Um, sure. and there's always a little bit of what's the word localism <laughs> that occurs. Like, you know, locals don't want to let all of the secrets out of the bag so that, you know, certain things don't get this like huge influx of people. Mm -hmm. Um, but I try to share, you know, what's what I think either won't like upset others or what. Well, really, you know, I'm selfish. I'll go climb it and then I'll share it with people. And then <laughs> yeah. it doesn't matter. <laughs> You're like, oh, I just checked on it. Looks great. Looks great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, if I've only seen it, then I won't say it. But or unless I got plans to do it. And then uh, <laughs> once I do, they'll be like, oh, it's great. Go get it. Have fun. Nice. <laughs> So I like the experience of going out and doing climbs before they've been climbed a lot because, well, you get a lot bigger challenge um, and you kind of get to choose the path. Whereas once they've been climbed a bunch where you swing your ice axe, the, the holes have sort of formed already and you end up inadvertently following up, following other people's paths, which 
you know, it, it kind of lessens the difficulty. So sometimes you're happy for that, but sure. having that raw, natural fight, um, you know, it's kind of special. Yeah. And, and so for people that may, might not know or have gone ice climbing, you, what you're saying, right, is if somebody does it before you, they've, they've already kind of put holes in the ice. And so, yeah, so when you're, exactly. when you're looking at it, you can be like, Oh, well, it's obviously easier for me to put my ice tool in here because there's already a hole versus having to kind of make a hole myself. Yeah. It saves a lot of energy. So even if something's been climbed once, like you might even be the second person and even having the pick holes from the first person makes it significantly easier. You probably won't be able to find every single one, but you know, even a third of them is going to, make it a bit easier. Now there's situations where, you know, you have melt and freeze or water's flowing over it and they'll cover up and refreeze the holes for the next day. Um, but yeah, in general, it, what the more climb has been done, it usually gets easier and easier, easier and easier. Yeah. Now does climate change sort of change some of these climbs over time too? Like 10 years ago, this was always in and now it's not. That's a good question. Um, you know, there's a lot of factors that seem to affect how and when ice climbs come in. And I think there's, you know, a lot of local discussion as to, you know, what's going to make for good ice here or what's going to, you know, make some climb we're all excited about come in this year. Um, and sometimes we think it's like, you know, general moisture in the ground, you know, like times of drought tend to not yield as good ice climbing, obviously. Um, sometimes it's like a wet fall. There are things where I think like you, you got all this like groundwater moving and that, you know, they spill over out over cliffs, which makes the ice climbs. But if it gets too cold, those groundwater seeps sometimes seem to freeze up. And I don't know if the water goes other places or it's just frozen solid for the winter. Um, so you never know. And then there's weird things like maybe like housing developments will start pulling from a water source or something else. And that might cut it off. Uh, a lot of the stuff, you know, is, um, comes out of mine shafts out here because the, you know, the Rocky mountains have so much water in them or the San Juans that they plug all these mine shafts. And as you guys know, water starts pouring out of those things and that can make ice climbs. And then you have mine remediation coming in and, plugging those holes and the ice climb stop. Um, so there's all kinds of weird factors. So it's climate change will probably have an effect, but there's all these other moving pieces too. Very dynamic. Yeah. Like in Canada, I think they tend to have like, because it's colder there, you get more of like running water that freezes and forms ice climbs. In Colorado, we often have like melt freeze cycles. So, especially here where there's like upper bowls, basins of snow that catch sun. And that, you know, even on a cold day, as we know, the sun will make the snow melt here. And then it drains and pours on a cliff down lower normally below that basin. And that's where we get our ice climbs. Um, and that happens on a smaller scale too. Sometimes just a little gully, um, the snow melt will form an ice climb. Now you've done instruction or guiding as well, haven't you, or clinics in the past? Yeah, so I've um, 
done all kinds of things, but um, I've taught lots of clinics at various ice fests, uh, URA, ice fest, Bozeman ice fest. Um, I've also been, done a little bit of ice climbing guiding, but not much. Recently, I've been working with uh, the Valdez Ice Festival up in Alaska, um, helping them rig all the ropes for the ice festival. It's kind of a challenging job up there because the we're often dealing with like 700 foot climbs. And for the clinics, we only want to use the bottom 120 feet or so. So we kind of have to lead up and rig all the ropes in the morning because the, otherwise they'll get frozen in overnight. Um, so it's a bit of a chore to uh to prepare for that like then that night we got to go take all the ropes down too um so i've been involved in that and then they also do rope access which is um most of the time it's for like construction type stuff where uh workers need to repel off a building and i help rig and instruct them on how to do it and it's it's similar to climbing except that you're usually going down instead of up because you can take the elevator to the top of the building in most cases um, and similar ish equipment and techniques, but kind of its own little offshoot. And uh, I've also done some canyoneering guiding, which uh, has its own fascinating set of both um, ethics and thought processes and rope work too. Their approach to rope work is completely different than industrial rope access and it's completely different than rock climbing um and ice climbing so it's it's fascinating to see all these different approaches to kind of solving similar but different problems yeah can you um can you touch on that a little bit like for canyoneering um you know uh for people would be going down usually um these kind of rock shoots or, or, or repelling off of faces for multiple repels and then maybe hiking out another drainage and then going down. So you're just kind of always going down. Um, but it's, it's interesting yep. to, to me anyways, like the difference, like you said, they're like, they do things completely different maybe than climbers would. And can you just like give one example of that? Yeah, I'll try to touch on it in a way that like everybody will understand. So one of the obvious ones, is that well, especially like in rock climbing, there's generally less risk tolerance for when it comes to repelling. Um, we like to put the risk into the climbing part. And then when it comes down, we want to have very secure anchors uh, to repel off. And that might mean a bolt or slings around a tree, something like that. Um, and oftentimes, like equipment is left behind or permanently in place for that. When it comes to canyoneering on the, well, bump up the ice climbing first. Ice climbing tends to have a little bit of looser risk tolerance when it comes to rappelling. Like ice climbers are more happy to rappel off a skinny little tree um, under the presumption that it's frozen in the ground. Hmm. Um, more so than, say, uh, a rock climber and the, the ice anchors, what we call V-threads, kind of freak people out, although they're they're usually pretty safe. Um, when it comes to canyoneering, um, so a popular canyon will often have like bolted anchors and that I would say like, you know, that's having gear left in place um, for, you know, areas that are heavily trafficked to rappel down. But on areas that are less heavily trafficked, there, 
there gets to be like a stricter canyoneering ethic and it's more of a leave no trace ethic um, in most cases. And they do, they got some bizarre things um, like there's a, th the most notable I can think of is a, what's called a sand trap anchor. Yeah. And they do this out in the desert canyons and it's, it's this tarp <laughs> and you, you like put sand in the tarp and then you fold it over and you're able to create enough friction um, and weight with the sand in the tarp that, you know, you're able to hold somebody's body weight while they repel off the cliff. And then there tends to be a second rope that comes up there. Now they're doing like a single rope repel and there's sort of like a pull line that unfolds the tarp and is able to empty the sand out and the whole thing pulls down. And, uh, to probably 99% of people, they'd think that's totally nuts and suicidal. Um, the system seems to work. I haven't tried it myself. Um, yeah, and there's right. a variety of other bizarre systems they have. Like another one's a fiddlestick where it's, uh, it's like a cotter pin almost in this, your repel system. Um, so that you repel down a single line. And again, you pull a, another line and the whole anchor just like, unties itself and falls down and you have to really make sure that that doesn't happen while you're repelling or you're goner and these kind of like thought processes would like blow the minds of you know most rock climbers um that are used to like a, a bolted anchor um so it's it's interesting how uh adventure is put into the sport you know mm -hmm. i guess like climbers don't like to have a lot of adventure in their repels if there doesn't need to be but canyoneering that's kind of like the core part of the sport you're repelling down these big faces and they love it climbers love going up um yeah so yeah it's, totally, it's interesting and you might be in a slippery waterfall with a whole post of other challenges in the canyoneering environment as well oh yeah canyoneering can make repelling pretty yeah well i guess adventurous or potentially dangerous if the water's hitting you from a waterfall that um, usually it's cold, at least around here. And so it's taking your breath away. And then it's also, you know, you're losing your footwork. It's trying to push you upside down. Um, it can get quite uncomfortable. And, and what was the name of the, the sand, um, the sand tarp? It's called the sand trap anchor. Sand. And you can look it up on, YouTube is probably the most entertaining way and watch people repelling off these things. And yes, you'll I probably think I, they're nuts. It's, <laughs> I encourage, I encourage everybody to go check it out at least once. Right. And be like, Oh, okay. That, I mean, not that that's the best definition of cannoneering, but uh, it, it, it'll show you some things. Yeah. It's kind of crazy. Well, I think it's a good, like that, like um, example of the thought process of like the leave no trace and a, a very interesting technical solution to, you know, accomplish like a leave no trace down a, a canyon. Um, and then the, you know, canyons are also rapidly changing, not quite as fast as an ice climb, but more so than say a rock climb because they have, you know, they flash flood, which means logs get moved and boulders get moved in them. And that can wipe out any existing anchors. There's all kinds of, um, water levels will make a big, big difference in a canyon too. If a pothole is full of water that you need to 
cross um, that may totally change the techniques you need to use to get through it. Um, Especially in the Southwest, you also have the risk of flash flooding within specific canyons and stuff as well. So it's, it's got a lot of variables. Yeah. I got surprised with the flash flood once. Um, and it was, it was pretty scary. Like you, you were, you were in a Canyon, like canyoneering. Yeah. So we, I was, uh, guiding a group of eighth graders, I think from Kentucky. And, uh, that morning I actually had a conversation with my, uh, the lead guide and, or the boss. And I'm like, you know, when do you, when do you call the trips off? And he's like, Oh, I pretty much never called one off in this Canyon. And, uh, it's really safe and such. There's all these various escapes out of the Canyon. And, um, I was like, Oh, okay, great. So off we went and we're hiking up, you know, to start the canyon and it's raining as we hike up. I think maybe it started raining when we got there, regardless. It rained for like 20 minutes and we stopped and had some food and got the kids out of the water and stuff. And um, then it was nice again. So we're like, oh, all right, cool. Everything seems safe. And, uh, you know, there's no obvious warning signs. Um, So we started down the canyon. And, uh, it was, you know, this is a short beginner Canyon too. It's not like particularly extreme. Um, but we did like a real short rappel into this cool little, like, I guess you call it a room, um, where it's a tight slot. It's probably like six feet wide or something. I think I put my hands on either side and span the gap. And we got like a couple kids down in there and we were kind of setting it up so that they would have another short rappel to get out. Well, I had like four kids in there and, a one of the instructors and all of a sudden we could hear this like sound coming down the canyon and i think i overheard a voice of some other canyoneering party going like uh-oh or here comes the water and uh it was like somebody had turned a faucet on and what was a a dry canyon now became a creek um so water like poured into our room and it filled it up and it was only I don't know, calf deep or something, because it the, then poured out the next one. Um, but it happened pretty fast. Oh, okay, I'm back. Um, it happened fast, and you know, it got the kids out of there just by lowering them. I had to lower them down through the waterfall, so they got kind of like an extreme experience, uh, a lot more than they bargained for. And by the time I got them all out, the water had stopped pouring, and you know, it's kind of it was scary, but there was nothing like, there was no extreme hazards, um, aside from like, you know, the imagined potential. Hmm. Um, but it was definitely a, a shot across the bow, um, in terms of, you know, worrying about that, um, and thinking about that for future, future judgment calls. Hmm. How long do you think it took from the time it quit raining to the water actually getting to you? It was probably half an hour, an hour. Because hmm. these were all like kids, like their first time repelling. Um, sure. So to get, yeah, it was probably, you know, by the time we got them like geared up and in there. So it must have just been enough time for this like sandstone basin, all the the little bits of water, you know, to gather up and come down. Um, hmm. And it wasn't, you know, it wasn't that far 
wasn't that big of a basin, I guess you'd say, um, in terms of Southwest speaking. Um, it wasn't like, you know, 20 miles of basin or anything. It was probably like a mile or two, maybe, probably a mile um, above us that it continued. So, um, yeah, that kind of stuff can uh, certainly catch you off guard. So, and I tell that story just because, like, I wanted to say, like, it can happen to everybody. Like, even if you feel like you know what you're doing and you feel like you're making good judgment calls and you've done your research, you know, mm-hmm. you can still get surprised. Now, you've also done some more remote stuff, like in Alaska. I know you you used to at least go Juneau area and do a lot of first ascent climbs and stuff as well. Yeah, starting in 2009, um, a friend of mine who was on the outdoor research team with me um, said, hey, want to go up to Juneau? I got a friend up there and um, there's supposed to be some great rock climbing. And I was like, sorry, that sounds great. We got some, you know, little bit of information to get started. And, you know, turns out I get stuck in a tent for a week and I hate this guy. Then, you know, I haven't had a lot of time to get to know him anyway so it wouldn't be that big of a loss <laughs> because you never know it's always a fear right you go like somewhere and you get stuck in the tent for a while you might <laughs> might no longer be friends out the other side um and, and i say that a little bit jokingly but uh so we went out there and we ended up staying with ryan johnson um who's the connection and uh blake and i had an amazing trip we flew up and we got uh i think we did like four big routes in five days and three of which were first ascents out on the mendenhall towers and these are like 1200 foot bases of granite that stick up out of the ice field it's a really dramatic setting um and all around you you see like glacier and rock spires sticking out and then you can see all the way down to the kind of the ocean, but it's just the inside passageway because um, there's still islands full of mountains all over the place. It's a bit like Never Neverland. Um, and so we had a fantastic trip and Ryan was like, hey, you got, man, you got to come back and go ice climbing. I knew I loved ice climbing. I'm like, all right, cool. So a couple of years later, I showed up with my ice gear and um, we went out and, uh, man, which trip was this? Um, I think we went to a place called Bart Lake and we found some big first ascents. One was like a thousand feet vertical the whole way with no ledges. And then I came back a couple of years later and we did this like really cool boat trip where we, uh, we chartered a boat for a week and we had a crew of like six, yeah, six climbers and, uh, went back into Tracy Arm Fjord, which on that boat is about a five hour boat ride from Juneau. I mean, like Juno has no roads going to it. So we're just like, that's how far, you know, out into the wilderness we were. Um, and I think we saw like one other boat on the way in there, maybe the whole trip. Um, and uh, at first we didn't see any ice because it's, it's coastal and you're right on the water. Um, and we're just like, but the, the cloud layer was low. So we like floated in and we're like, oh no, we got skunked. You know, we got like six people together here. And we were paying all this money and there's no ice. Um, but the next morning, um, so the, because the, what is it? The fjord's so deep, we couldn't anchor the boat in it. We'd have to like drive it in and out each day. 
Um, so we're driving in early in the morning and Ryan comes down and wakes me up and he's like, Hey, Hey, you gotta come see this. So he brings me up on deck and we look up and, you know, up higher on the, the fjord side, I guess you'd call it a huge cliff. And there's these giant, I think three stripes of ice coming down it. We're like, Oh wow, crap. We got to get ready. We're going to go climb this. Um, and it took us three attempts to get up and climb that thing. Uh, just figuring out the approach and, the Oh, what else? Just the first couple pitches were kind of like half rotted and not really in and sorting out the logistics. And then our third try, we finally were able to complete the whole phase. Um, and then I had a number of other um, trips up there with Ryan, both rock climbing and ice climbing. Uh, and then unfortunately he passed away. I think it's been two years ago now on the Mendenhall towers. Um, they finished a, a big ice climb that Ryan had been dreaming of for, oh, geez, probably about a decade. I remember him showing pictures of it to me and talking about it. Kind of a little sad. I didn't get the call to go do it with him. Uh, but they finished the route, and then they walked across the top, and it was a beautiful day. And then as they were descending, we don't know exactly what happened, um, but we assume, like, a cornice might have broken off the summit ridge and uh, pushed them into a um, crevasse, and uh, they were pretty much gone after that. Um, but so, but through Ryan, I met a not lot of other friends in Juneau, and so I have this like community that's you know far away up there, and um, you know I still go back and you know, I see Ryan's parents and my other friends and do other adventures. Um, with less this last summer, Carly and I were hoping to do a, another first ascent, rock climbing first ascent out there. And we had crap weather, but we had brought pack rafts. Um, and being new to, let's say pack rafting is like a couple of years for me. Um, so we brought them just as like a backup plane. And we ended up pack rafting every day. And it turns out there's great pack rafting in Juneau. You can hike up to the toe of a glacier and you put your boat in and then you float down the river back to the road and um it made for lots of adventure and thrills and laughs and good times so yeah that's that's my juno bits of stories so um, go ahead that yeah, just pack rafting seems to be a theme of ours that we're we're running in to all these people that are pack rafting. What what kind of got you started down that road? Um, yeah, well, I get you know I grew up in Maine and New Hampshire, so being around water was a natural thing. Not so much white water, but we had lakes and ponds and the ocean, um, and so that was kind of my. Uh, youth, I guess I'd say. And then I did a little bit of kayaking, I think probably around 2004 or so, maybe after I moved to Uray and uh, had some shoulder dislocation issues. So I decided that it seemed unpredictable and I dropped out of the boating scene before I got too into it. Um, and then a friend of mine, Lizzie Scully, who had just started working for Alpaca, he's like, oh, you got to come try it. And uh, I was like, all right, all right, I'll go pack rafting. And sure enough, it was super fun. And it wasn't long before I was ordering my first pack raft. And uh, 
planning pack rafting adventures with friends and trying to like get to know some of the community. Um, and after, you know, spending much of my life focused on climbing for 20 or so years, um, I was certainly ready to have some like other influences and other ideas like climbing was starting to feel like, Oh, I'm kind of going out to do the same thing again. A lot of work training to keep climbing a harder grade all the time, or even the same hard grades I, I used to do. Um, so pack rafting has opened up this like whole new world where I can go down rivers. And even as I drive back and forth across Colorado, I, I've looked at the cliffs millions and millions of times now, and now I can look at the rivers too and look at, you know, the, the rapids and the conditions and kind of a whole new thing to get excited about. Have you, have you mixed climbing and pack rafting? Like has pack rafting opened up any climbing for you? I actually have, I've mixed pack used the pack raft to get to ice climbs which is kind of funny um and that idea i guess initially started on a trip i did to norway with steven berwanger we were i hadn't been there but he had been a few times and done a fair bit of climbing there already and he's like yeah we're gonna bring pack raft to you know go access these climbs across the fjords that you can't drive to i'm like well, that sounds interesting, you know, getting in an inflatable boat in the winter in northern Norway, way above up in the Arctic Circle with uh, a bunch of sharp things. <laughs> what could yeah, no go wrong? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm like, and he's like, oh, uh, I forget the climber's name, some famous guy. Yeah, he did it on like an SUP and like cross. So it can't be that bad. And I'm like, yeah, we're talking like winter water temperatures and stuff, but okay i'll go along with it and we did we brought the pack rafts all around but didn't end up using them it's too windy to bring them out on the fjord um but more recently like you know down the line after i bought my own and everything um a bit like in glenwood canyon you got to like paddle across the colorado river to reach some ice climbs um and things of that nature um so you're yeah going out and we'll, cold water like that adds a whole nother level of danger but um it also allows you to access things even like close to the road that most people can't get to so they're not going to be crowded or um hacked out we'd say yeah. Um, so yeah it's, i haven't met mixed it with rock climbing yet but i'm sure i will before long sure at yeah. least as access you start you know you put too much weight uh i want to say like you bring too much gear and you start limiting what you can do. Although that the Grand Canyon and pack rafts this winter and found you can actually put a lot of weight in one of those boats um, mm. and they'll still perform well. So it's, if we had two, we were almost self-supported by with just the pack rafts. We had one big raft. Um, so our boats were loaded to the hill and I could like not even really pick mine up by myself. So it was pretty heavy. Um, and, and we're you, great. You did the whole the Grand Canyon this winter, then. Yeah, yeah. Carly and I and Lizzie and a uh, group. I think we had a party of six that went down. Um, and if you're wondering what doing the Grand Canyon like is in the winter, which I certainly was too, um, we drove out there in a blizzard, <laughs> thinking like, this seems like a shit idea. Um, <laughs> And there was snow right up until I think we got to Lee's Ferry. And I was pretty concerned, like, you know, two weeks, 
or I think it was 16 days we had planned on being on the rivers a lot and winter camping for 16 days really even being an ice climber doesn't sound that awesome especially like get you know splashing through huge scary wave trains and rapids mm-hmm. um but it turned out not being that bad like we had snow up until we got to lee's ferry and it was cold and things were freezing there but once you get in the canyon it was definitely more temperate um but the bigger hazard aside i don't know it might have snowed on us a hair down there we in its lower elevation we've mostly had like reasonable conditions but just being like in and out of the water all day and getting wet and dunked of course you get terrified too those waves are so big um that like there's a lot a lot of parts of the canyon where the sun just doesn't even shine so you don't have the opportunity to dry your stuff out um so between that and a heavy dew early in the morning like we were really dealing with wet clothes and tents and all that kind of stuff um and that was a super damper on the psych and comfort level but you know our stove you know our stoves are actually certified for down in the grand canyon i know i was wishing i had brought one because that would have made all the difference between like being able to dry stuff out like while we were sleeping um and without sunshine i was kicking myself on that one yeah, it's funny because you know we don't really look at ourselves as a uh, as a water company, uh, but you're the third person I think we've had on mm-hmm. in a couple of weeks who has done the Grand Canyon in the winter, and we've oh, also cool. had people, we've also had people on like John Wellfelt used to do these sixteen day trips in Western Alaska where he would make his own raft and everything, and then oh wow. You're, you're, yeah, this was like back in the eighties before there was really GPS and all, or pack rafts even really existed. Um, and yeah, he, he would make his own and go up there. And it's kind of funny because I think you're maybe the fourth or fifth person on we've had that does, uh, has done pack rafting mm-hmm. more than, more than a couple times. We had Ben Brochu on and he's had some pack rafting adventures and misadventures as well um so yeah it's pretty interesting yeah, yeah i've had the, the fortunate this- um experience to be like in with the alpaca crew so they like you know the the folks who build them um so i get invited on some pretty neat trips and then of course you know i seem to find a couple interesting ones to to create on my own yeah, all this pack rafting talk maybe makes me really, really think I need to get a pack raft, huh? If you got the money to throw at it, they can certainly be a lot of fun. Um, and then, like for me, when I, you know, I like to travel internationally and go different places, but and having done so a lot and having a lot of different experiences, like most of them were centered around climbing. And I did a number of trips that, you know, where I didn't go climbing, I really struggled uh, with entertainment. Um, you know, I ended up spending a lot of time online during the trip, trying to figure out what to do in these different areas. Um, and it's really hard to do something that's not a tour. Um, and I don't like tours cause they tend to not have any adventure and other people that are often in the tour group are not fit and don't have the same thirst for adventure that I do. So 
by going to tour, it costs a lot, and then I'm usually unsatisfied. Um, so having a pack raft, I find I can go to these like international places and, you know, even just hopping on an easy river in a totally new place is fun enough. Um, mm. Like I took one to Thailand and we did a couple rivers before the, the lightweight paddle we had broken half and <laughs> weren't able to do anymore. We went a little too light, but um, I really gave us something like totally wild and crazy and adventurous to do. One of the things ended up being what looked like an irrigation canal and has all these like bamboo bungee sticks sticking out of it and um, all kinds of strainers and we're walking through banana fields, portaging and all kinds of bizarre sort of things. I just, you know, the, the level of adventure I wouldn't have been able to find, um, without having a tool like a pack craft and they, you know, they pack up the size of a sleeping bag. So the ability to take them even like on a plane is super simple. Um, so that, that ticket to that, like sense of freedom and adventure is, you know, worth a lot to me. Hmm. That's cool. Um, so if, yeah, I want to go somewhere without climbing. The next thing I'm going to look is like, Oh, pack craft, obviously. Um, so. Yeah, you should go get one. That's the short answer. Yeah, this is the short answer. I need one for sure. <laughs> I, can, I, I can loan you one of mine uh, sometime if you want to just give it a whirl, see what you yeah. think. Yeah, there's plenty of stuff I could do here in Dysfunction Junction. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. Exactly. The Colorado R River right in town is a good, like, easy beginner kind of terrain to to sample the goods and even like the river and junction is, I guess is how I sort of see it a lot, a lot of times is that, you know, you're going through like kind of an industrial part of Grand Junction along the Colorado river, but there's enough like bushes and things. You don't really see most of the industry. Mm -hmm. And so you're paddling through junction and it kind of feels like you're almost out in the desert wilderness, or at least it's a totally different, perspective and experience um there's a few homeless camps along the river too which maybe makes it less seem wilderness but uh, <laughs> the, the green sure. junction experience is totally changed by being on the water yeah absolutely so places yeah you wouldn't even like you're so used to seeing just seeing it from that other perspective is it's like going there for the first time again so back to the guidebooks, how long does it take you like time commitment wise to put together, say a 400 page guidebook? It's kind of a massive amount of hours. I haven't ever measured. Um, I'd be curious, but I also don't want to, because that might talk me out of doing it. What's that, Kevin? Yeah, I said, yeah, you might be like, wow, I make two bucks an hour. Great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I might think that. Um, so, you know, I having like being able to get a whole bunch of photos and stuff of the area in the years leading up to the actual writing part um, is super beneficial. Um, I guess I would say like in order to get photos and write, it really gets band out over several years with most of the work being done in one year 
and I still have other work I do. So it's always like juggling it kind of in my free time. Um, but I guess I would say like kind of a couple years with the months leading up to sending it off to print being pretty intense. Um, there's a lot of last minutes. It's sort of the, like the 80, 20 rule, um, that gets thrown out a lot that like final 20% seems to be really like 80% of the effort, hmm. um, in terms all the little things you forgot and the, the things the printers need. Um, and then, you know, you're trying to gather um, last minute content contracts and content. And um, you're also working on like ad sales, um, coming up with the money to get it printed and trying to get interest, you know, in, in selling it. It takes about, how, oh, what is it? couple months to get it printed um so i kind of have to plan you know like uh for a nice climbing guidebook i want to get it out in the beginning of winter so i really need to be finishing it like almost mid-summer um or later in the summer it always goes longer than i hope it's gonna do in terms of like you know trying to get it out for one date and um there's so much back and forth and details that creep up um, so yeah, it's, it's probably, oh, I don't know, a thousand hours or something easy. I'm not really sure. I don't, I try to make it fun though. Like for this, um, you know, this ice climbing one now I'm going out and try to explore these new ice climbing ice climbs that I haven't done before. So that makes it interesting. And then taking pictures and GPS notes and, um, all of that. So the process, you know, it's not. I'll just work. I try to involves a lot of adventures to lead up to the the actual book. So it's kind of fun, guilty fun in that way. Right now, I mean, you're actually a photographer and videographer as well on top of all this. So it's it's not like you're just climbing. You bring a lot of other pieces to it. Yeah, having the bring you know my bigger camera out along on some of the ice climbing trips is a little bit of a drag it's it takes better photos but some of my friends are really fast hikers and uh so dragging the camera equipment along with the ice climbing equipment and then you know i'm six four and over 200 pounds so all my stuff is bigger too and so my my clothes weigh more and my boots weigh more and all that kind of stuff um, and I know I'm getting into excuses, but yeah, I end up puffing and puffing and trying to manage a lot more and you want to run ahead to try to get, you know, a certain photo. And then, you know, you're all gassed from that and pulling the camera out and hoping the lens doesn't fog up. And then they, they walk past you and you pack all your gear up and then you got to run back and catch up to them again. Um, it's a lot, but I also, uh, am a commercial drone pilot. So one of that's been a great tool both uh, for checking out ice conditions, um, but also getting photos for the guidebook. I can fly my drone, you know, from the comfort of the car in a lot of cases and not have to post hole up the side of a mountain to get one photo. Hmm. So, and you said you're using that to, to kind of scout the routes as well. Like you're able to see if they're in without ever having to really yeah. go in there. Yeah. So there's, you know, there's a lot of ice climbs you can see from the road, but there's a sure. lot that you can't. They might be tucked back in a canyon or over the hill. 
um, or just far enough back. So if I'm in a, like a permitted airspace, I'll just stay at the car and I can fly my drone up and, you know, get a pretty good, you know, high res photo, um, that I can then, you know, zoom in on and take a look at the ice conditions, um, and see if it's worth hiking up there or not. It's been a fantastic tool. Crazy. Saves me a lot of time. Then I'll know like, oh, okay, well that one's not in. I'll drive down the road and we'll go do some other ice climb or, um, or I'll know I can, you know, keep coming back and check on conditions of routes. Um, and I'm flying my drone each time instead of, you know, hiking for hours. Mm-hmm. Um, I get plenty of exercise with all my other adventures, so I'm not missing out on anything. Just post holding mm-hmm. <laughs> through the forest <laughs> for to get one photo. <laughs> yeah. Well, cool. Where can <laughs> that, people that's find a character help? building enough experience that? Yeah, I don't need to do it all the time. Post yeah, holding yeah. horrible. Yeah, I agree. So where can people find out more about you, Jason? So I got a website, visualadventures.com. It's uh, kind of been my my business and art site. Um, so my photography is on there. Uh, you can purchase guidebooks. The Suffer Candy Volume 1 is to the Uray area. There's a rock climbing one to the Uray area as well. Um, with the, it's like kind of greater San Juan's called Climbs of the Million Dollar Highway. Um, those are also in many of the Colorado mountaineering shops, not every single one, but a lot. Um, and yeah, uh, you can Instagram as visual adventures. If you just want to follow along on my adventures in a simpler fashion. Awesome, man. Um, so yeah, visual adventures, I'll follow you on Instagram right now. Cool. Go find you. Um, Cool, man. Well, I pretty regularly post various, you know, photos from random adventures. So you'll get a span of uh, pack crafting and climbing and whatever. Well, these days it's cooking because the adventure has been trimmed a little bit with the COVID thing. But Inside the house. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. I get you. <laughs> okay. uh, well, I appreciate you taking the time. Uh, thanks.